BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Extra prolific. Welcome to the library with Tim Meineke. Thank you so much for joining us on especially this crazy, crazy time in the world right now. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm from New York. I, I, you know, I started this podcast really just to, you know, with the idea of like not knowing exactly what was going on as I was growing up as a kid in New York City with like, you know, for me, it was like I always say self-destruction came out when I was 11 years old. So to crush that stereotype is what we did. Obviously, no knew that was an important moment in music and in hip hop. But you know, an eleven-year-old kid, you're absorbing the music and not really understanding what's going on. So this podcast is really about, um, you know, what was going on at the time uh, that I was a young kid and learning. And all these groups are coming out, and obviously, you're more, you're more West Coast, so. It was a lot harder to get, I guess, West Coast music back then. Uh, but talk to me about your early beginnings. I mean, what what drew you to hip hop? What when did you know you wanted to do this as like your form of expression? Yeah, um, when I first heard um, my first hip hop record, I believe um, it was Curtis Blow, The Breaks. Um, it was at a party that I heard within the apartment complex and I was blown away by this art form. Um, after that, I think I heard Rapper's Delight, um, Sugar Hill Gang, obviously. And it just, I don't know, it's not like I chose it. It was almost like it was it was grabbing me, almost like this is who you are. And it encompassed many things. It encompassed breakdancing, graffiti, beatboxing. Um, it was just a lot involved with it, and it spoke to me. As a young person, I was very young. It spoke to me, and it kind of told me this is the avenue that if I wanted to speak, I could speak in. And so that was my earliest memories. Um, but from there, it just it began to let me know that you know there is an avenue, there is a genre that speaks to my type. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you want to speak up, here's the microphone. And it made me feel like that. Like, finally, somebody understands me. Finally, uh, finally, somebody is speaking in a way that I can, you know, understand it and comprehend. Um, so that's how it started. Did you, 
I mean, did you understand, I guess, right off the bat that it was not just, you know, you mentioned the culture part, but did you understand that there was more to it than just the music part of it? I mean, did you, um, or did that come later, or is that kind of all came at once? Um, what I understood early on was that this was directed towards me, and I understood that there was a responsibility involved from the person who was giving it to me. In other words, they weren't just going to give me anything. They weren't just going to feed me garbage, uh, whether we were partying, whether we were doing something conscious, whether we were whatever they were telling me. It almost was like they were telling me with my best good in mind, Mm. though I didn't have the full picture. I knew that whoever was talking to me was talking to me like an uncle or a dad or somebody who wanted to see me stay safe. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned the, the obviously names we know, but was there like a, you know, maybe like, you know, you, you know, comedians talk about a comedian's comedian, right? Like maybe someone that no one really knows about, but if you ask any comedian about him or her, they're like, oh yeah, that, that's, that was our influence. That was a big impact on our lives. For you, was yeah. there a, was there like a rapper's rapper for you that, maybe never blew up in the sense that, you know, wasn't played on MTV or, you know, music box or anything like that. But, but to you was like, had this significant impact yeah. on you. There were a lot of, um, a lot of talented guys, um, as I was coming up. Now I'm in elementary junior high and I'm going to the high school games. I remember the first time I went to a, a high school game, one of the high school games in Houston, Texas, Smiley versus Forrest Brook. And I heard a guy, he was rapping and people were crowded around him and he was talking about nasty stuff, Hmm. you know, and I was like, oh man. And it just clicked. I'm like, man, you can rap about different things. Mm -hmm. And so he was talking about, he was talking about too short type things before too short. And it made me in a sense, want me, it made me want to, you know, talk about that. And I remember going to the school the next day and I started rapping nasty a little bit, you know what I'm saying? And uh, there were, yeah, different influences within my life from guys that never blew up. But I would have to say for the guy that really blew up before we really had um, access to him was KRS. I was was living in Houston, Texas. That's where I'm from initially. And for the summer, we went to L.A. And I heard on a L.A. radio, college radio station, this Boogie Down production thing, this poetry song. And I was like, whoa, who is this guy? It was so clear, it was so concise, so influential. And I was so influenced that I even went back home and I grabbed Tila Rock's tape because I thought he may have something to do with Scott Rock. So you can stop guessing if this is a gift or a written down memo. See, I am a professional. This is not a demo. In fact, call it a lecture, a visual picture. Sort of a poetic and rhythm like mixture. Listen, I'm not dissing, but there's something that you're missing. Maybe you should touch reality. Stop wishing for beats with plenty bass and lyrics set in haste. If its meaning doesn't manifest, put it to rest. I am a poet. You try to show it, yet blow it. It takes concentration for fresh communication, observation. That is to see without speaking. Take off your coat, take notes. I am teaching the class or rather school. So yeah, man, it's, it's been a lot of guys coming up that had the gift. Um, yeah, I used to battle rap with a guy named Kool-Aid. He was dope in high school. 
there was a guy who used to do some things on the um, Houston radio stations uh, called Lester Sir Pace, and he had this song called Where's Your Hair, Gal? And kind of clowning women who didn't have a lot of hair. So there's a lot of local guys that I looked up to, but uh, ultimately I would say on the big scene, Karis One was the guy who hit me first that when I came back home like I had to find who this guy was and ultimately he blew up obviously wow. so you know I'm obviously speaking to you as uh, extra prolific the uh, the solo artist but obviously you know you, you, your history is you came as extra prolific uh, as part of a group a duo um, how did you go from you know the middle school high school kid in Houston Texas to uh, extra prolific the duo but also kind of becoming a part of the uh, hieroglyphics collective yeah well uh, I was always rapping obviously when I got to uh, my high school I was still rapping but I had I quit rapping for a year because I was a little bit discouraged because it seemed like it was becoming a trend and I just hated the way people didn't seem to really love it but they were trying to be opportunist. And so I was kind of done with it. And then one guy um, that I hooked up with, his name was Jamal. Uh, he was starting to rap and he was new to rapping. And I said, man, if you need some lyrics, I can help you. So I started writing some raps for him and his group. And then once I started writing again, it started hitting me. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm feeling it. So he and I, we made a group. It was called Authority. We had a song called African Freaks. And it was over the uh, the um, Looney's uh, I Got Five on it sample, which for those who know is Why You Treat Me So Bad by Club Nouveau. And so people were like, man, you guys, this this song could do something, man. You guys are dope. You guys are dope. And so from there, I bumped into Casual. And casual, he didn't really like the guy who I was with. Long story short, I ended up going with Hyro. Um, and my, my other guy got left behind doing some other things. And uh, from there, man, is when I got the name Extra Prolific. That was Casual's old group name, but he was going to come out solo. And I, ca- I got Extra Prolific because the industry had a snoop already, and he was being... He was being uh, executive produced by Suge Knight, and everybody seemed to be scared of Suge Knight. So they wanted me to kind of change my name. So I said, if I use Cash, said, wait, man, you can use my name. And then from there, you can put Snoop under it so it won't be so blatant. And that's how that started. How did you. I was reading an article, I think about the, the, your deb- the debut album, and, and it talks about how, you know, talk about the different approaches to uh, the the people or the MCs in the hieroglyphic, uh, you know, collective, and, you know, Dell being slightly left of center, Souls of Mischief were kind of like the young, battle-hungry, you know, cypher warriors, and they talk about you being kind of like the, they quote you as the, the L.O. Couge of the South, you know, so that, you know. Um, yeah. How did you, how did you, you create your style, and why did you? And, and what are your thoughts about kind of being that kind of being the comparison, being known as like the LL Cool J, I guess, style? Well, my style came from when I when I got with Hyro, I was new at rapping. I was new at MCing, meaning wordplay and learning about. Um, the fundamentals of certain MC styles. 
And so before I joined with Hyro, I was listening to, you know, DJ Quick, Spice One, LL. Um, if I did grab a leaders of the new school album, I would record the two songs that I like and I would return the tape. <laughs> nice. <You know? laughs> I, I, obviously, Tribe Called Quest is phenomenal. They're more mainstream as far as their sound. Um, but I didn't get into the really weird, weird stuff. Like I didn't, I, I didn't get into ultramatic, uh, ultramagnetic MCs. I didn't get into that. Uh, but I love Special Ed. I love Dana Dane and Slick Rick. So I was hip hop, but I wasn't all the way to the underground lyricist um, part of things. Right. And so when I came, I had my big personality, but I was still willing to learn what they were doing because I had such a great respect for what they were doing. And so when you hear me, you hear a lot of personality from a guy who's been that way for years, who's just beginning to learn the art of MCing. And so LL was one of my influences. Matter of fact, when I start, I used to clown the guys, uh, you know, uh, playfully. I, I used to be like, man, y'all daylight souls. I'm more like LL. And so <laughs> I was kind of nice. relearning what it was to be a rapper in a sense, because I had such a great respect for what they were doing. But my personality was so much so, that I love all the LL albums. I love when he was able to yell on one record and be cool on one MC on a record and then be chill on the next. And so that was my style because I always had the ladies in mind and I always had the MCs in mind. So the LL is, 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 is a great uh, comparison because that's kind of like where I would pattern myself after initially until I got into high rock. I want to ask you about, uh, kind of what it's like to be on a on a major label in the sense that you know you you, you signed with uh, jive records and uh in this article about the uh, 20th anniversary of the debut album like it should be it talks about how you same passage talking about your style talks about how jive records couldn't f- and really figure out what to do with you what did what does that mean like what does it mean when a label signs you but then has no clue what to do like you know i don't know if that makes sense like no clue what they're supposed to do with someone they signed they obviously signed you for a reason so what right. what, what why isn't there follow through on their part to uh, i guess make it work or you know figure it out yeah well there's two sides uh, to that coin one is just like we just spoke about i was not exactly like hyro I was different. I was the black sheep in native tongues. You know what I'm saying? I was the, I was the, um, if you want to say like DOS effects in EPMD, meaning that I wasn't the same as everybody else. Exactly. Um, the other side of that is the label itself. It was not the same, even though the logo was the same, it wasn't the same when I was coming up. It wasn't the same label that put out steady B. KRS, Tribe Called Quest, they were going through a transition and they were now getting these R&B numbers from High Five, Black Street Boys, R. Kelly, which mm. makes you want to gravitate towards the numbers. Right, right. And so they literally had A&R men who were doing homework about hip hop. It wasn't like you and I where we said, man, I love that record. That's dope. I know talent when I hear it. They right. had been to school and they were learning what was dope. And I don't even know if you can learn what's dope. Dope is something that you feel. If I was an, if I was an A&R for a country musician, I I know what a good record is, but I can't really say 
from the best from the top of my heart what a great country record is because that's not my genre right and so they were really confused like man do we market him to the ugk crowd or do we mar market him to the too short crowd or do we market him to the um uh krs one boogie down productions crowd he's like a mixture and so fans look at that record like man it's so slept on it's so dope but because they didn't have it organically in their heart as fans they wasn't sure what to do with certain records. And so mine got kind of put on the shelf. And once it didn't take off by itself, they got unenthused. Mm. So what happened after the, uh, the debut? Um, how long, how, I guess, how long did you stay with Jive? And what was your, what was your thinking when the relationship ended? Like, what was your plan for yourself after it was ending? My plan, first of all, with Jive was to, um, you know, put out a couple of singles and then try to milk it and then do another album. But what happened was I was on a phone call with my manager. And this is back in the day when we had three-way phone calls. So I was quiet <laughs> while they talked. And uh, he was basically talking on some foolish stuff like, oh, man, we put out two singles. We don't know what else to do. We looking at, we listening to the whole album and we don't hear anything else. And so it, we basically are done with it. And so once I heard that, um, I went to the Low Down Dirty Shame um, album release party and I was going to let everybody know on the mic, you know, kind of like where I was. And so I kind of like blasted the executives. I blasted Jive and I let everybody know that they probably hadn't heard my single uh, because there wouldn't be it wouldn't be promoted. And so once they heard that, they let me go. They marked me off as crazy. And from then I just began to work on my craft. I said, man, well, you know, um, if I was able to get signed, that's, that's some recognition. Let me continue right. to walk down this path in such a way where, because I wasn't the greatest MC on my first album. I was more leaning on my style, my delivery, my wit, um, things like that. And so I knew that I had a greater, um, a greater level to accomplish. And so that was my focus after that. Like, man, let me dig into my craft. Let me get better at this word playing and them seeing so that the fans, whoever they are, whenever they come by, can respect a good project. I want to just take a step back uh, just to kind of give the listener kind of an understanding of what it means when, when we say that you were a part of the, the Hieroglyphics Collective. What is, at that time, what, and what is the importance of that statement of saying, I am a part of the Hieroglyphics Collectors. What did that mean, at, especially at that time when you were debuting and coming out? Yeah, Hieroglyphics um, is a, was a crew uh, that was uh, grown organically from guys who lived uh, close to each other. It was casual. Souls of Mischief, Dale, uh, Pep Love, J-Biz, and myself. And um, J, uh, Dale was Ice Cube is Ice Cube's cousin. Mm -hmm. And so he's the one that got his toe in the dough before everybody else. And so we were kind of working on our craft and things like that. I came a little later once they were already working and they kind of brought me in. And but it was the same thing you have a Wu Tang clan, Freestyle Fellowship, um Hieroglyphics was just this family of different groups that were known to be great lyricists and innovative. And um and so once the, the, the family got recognized, 
you know, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, we understand who he is. It's kind of like if you see somebody from the Wu-Tang Clan that you've never heard of, they've already, they already have a sense of recognition because you know who they are a part of. And so Hyro is that type of uh, family that came up, man. They wanted to be innovative. Although we were from the West Coast, we didn't have a West Coast sound. We were more focused on lyricism, uh, beats and breaks, you know, and hardcore underground open mic type of lyricism. And so that's where I came out of. When you were recording, um, you know, the debut album, Like It Should Be, did you, because of the albums that came out from the higher, you know, from Dell's album, Souls of Mischief's album, Casuals, you know, did you, prior to your album dropping, was there extra, quote-unquote, pressure you put it on yourself for the debut album? I mean, did that kind of, did, did those albums prior, you know, No Need for Alarm and 93 Till Affinity, and uh, did those kind of give a healthy competition for you to kind of you know help step up your creative or your, you know your, your game on that on that aspect of it did you even did you even think about those albums prior to while you were recording your debut album um the way we did it was everybody had demos um cash had a demo souls had a demo i had a demo pep love and jbs had a demo now dale's first album wasn't no need for alarm it was i wish my brother george was here Mm-hmm. And so, and that was commercial. And we knew that Dell's next move was going to be on some underground stuff because he didn't exactly love the way the direction that Ice Cube and uh, Jinx had placed him. And right. so the way we came at each other, man, we would just be riding in the car and I'd be like, man, listen to the new song I did. Be like, oh man, that's dope. And they play something, listen to what we did. And so it was more like inspiration. That's um, awesome. Yeah. You know, it was like, man, whoa, we can't wait till the world hears this. And if something wasn't really appraised or loved by the family, it may fall off and never be heard by the public. So we were more like excited about what each one of us had to bring to the table. Um, me, myself, personally, I never felt any pressure. Uh, matter of fact, I could have been a little oblivious to the fact that the fans did want to hear more complex lyrics. I was just so excited to give my my angle, my version, my perspective of what we could be, which was, you know, this cool guy who was from the South and who had, um, you know, who loved the ladies, who had this type of voice and this thing. I was ready to give my angle. And so it was never competition. It was never pressure. It was more excitement about, man, once you guys come out, they're going to love this. Matter of fact, we didn't know who the, the, the public would love most. We just knew that we were dope and we couldn't wait for each person's single to come out. And so when I came out, it was just excitement with, within the crew. Um, it was, it wasn't any pressure. Uh, before we move on to the, you know, the new album, uh, like it's supposed to be, I just want to ask you two questions about like uh, jive records and, and, and your experience. And, and I promise you I'll be done with that. Um, uh, uh, what, uh, in 2020, looking back, what do you think your, uh, the biggest lesson you learn business-wise from your time at Jive? And then also from that time, what do you think you the biggest lesson you learned creatively um, as an artist, your music music side of it, uh, that you kind of take with you to today? Um, the biggest lesson that I learned um, from the Jive thing is like, you know, once you have something that you 
are confident in, once you've asked a multitude of counsel, once you've checked with the people that you know have your best regards in mind, don't ever second guess what you're doing just because somebody won't push you. It's like, uh, you know, numbers, they do tell the truth, but they don't tell the whole truth. What do I mean by that? Vanilla Ice sold 10 million, right? Does that make him the dopest? Not at all. Nope. <laughs> Hammer. MC Hammer, who I have respect for, uh, he sold millions. Does that make him the dopest? Not at all. And so just because you don't sell as much as somebody else, that's, that's not the way you rate dope. You rate dope on dope. It's on its own scale. So that's what I learned because for a minute they had me second guessing what I had turned in. And it's not like it's a classic album in the sense that I believe it should have gotten five mics, but I believe it's four mics at least. And from there, there's something for you to work with. If you can get Keith Murray to blow up, if you can get, um, you know, who else was on the label at the time, anybody else to blow up, then there's something here for you to work with. So I would say with the jive thing is like, if people can't see it after you, you don't want to be solo in your own thoughts, but if you've checked with everybody else and you know in your heart what dope is and um, a big company won't acknowledge you, then keep on going. Even Dre, he, he questioned the chronic at one time because nobody was signing them. That's one of the best hip hop albums ever made. Um, and what was the second question? Uh, music wise, like our, uh, I guess the uh, kind of the creative process wise, like what was your kind of biggest take from that and that you kind of use today as you continue to, you know, write and do art? Okay, yeah. The second is just um, creative wise, man, like just stick to stick to your formula. Like, what do you do? How do you hear it? What's what's true to you? You know, it's it's one thing I noticed when I was on Jive Records, they had uh, if somebody would blow up, they started trying to search for the formula on why they blew up. And instead of trying to have somebody do their thing, their own thing, they wanted to mimic what blew up. And so that's, to me, that's, that's a fake formula. All that's going to do is cause you to be a copycat. We got an M&M, next thing you're going to have a, you know, a, a, a Snickers bar or somebody. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. What you need to do is you need to do what the person that you looked up to did, which is come from the heart and make a song that you think is dope and take a risk. Stop being so safe. Soon as somebody does the auto-tune, we got a million guys doing the auto-tune. You know what I mean? So what I've learned creatively is like, trust your ear. If it's your ear that got you signed, trust your ear. If it's your man who you trust before you got signed, then trust him. But don't change up to fit in. Do your thing and then let the people change up to fit in with you. Uh, I'm turn to the new album, uh, like it's supposed to be. Uh, can you just talk about the title and what it means in 2020? And uh, and uh, obviously, it's a it's a it's 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 reference to your your first album. But uh, can you just talk about the the significance of the title, like it's supposed to be? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like it's supposed to be. Obviously, it's a play on like it should be, which is my first album. Mm -hmm. um, it was it wasn't my idea, um, but my man. Um, Pete Spray, that's one of the producers, you know, uh, managing me and things like that. And Oh Love, they came to me and they were saying, well, man, why don't we do it like it's supposed to be? And at first I was like, ah, I don't know about that. You know what I mean? Because I've seen guys try to do some things, replicas of their first album, part twos, if you will. 
and it it doesn't always work out. So I was a little bit hesitant. But uh, as I began to work on the project, I said, okay, man, this might be dope um, if I can have a reference point for the people who love the first album and now they can see the second album to make a bookend for what I started. Um, so like it's supposed to be in its greater context is the way that I feel life really should be, where hip-hop, we're going back to the self-destruction days where we're not just going to talk good in life but then talk bad on our records we're not just going to give 10 G's to the boys club, but then lead them wrong in our music. Like it's supposed to be is about where we encompass the whole message. The soundtrack is going to match our talk. And it's the way we think sh things should be as far as lyrics, content, beats, uh, singing, everything on one accord, one consistency where every, where everybody can see this is the way it should be. So, like it's supposed to be, it's not only a play on words, but it's the way that I think hip-hop should be. And I think we've dro dropped the ball in the sense when we glorified criminality, when we made immorality a good thing, we forgot about how impressionable some minds could be. And so like it's supposed to be, it's full circle where I'm coming and I'm saying like, yeah, I know I said like it should be before, but like it should be, like it's supposed to be, this is really where it's at, man, where you can play it in front of your kids, use some of the principles to raise your kids, uh, come together and bring fathers back in the home. Like it's the full picture when back in the day, I just had partial, a part of a picture, you know, which mostly had me in mind. Now I'm thinking about everybody and what it takes for us to succeed as a community. Is that why uh, I just want to? I'm going to skip ahead in, the, in terms of the tracks, but uh, DJs and MCs is, a, is a, I think, is a, is a phenomenal track. Uh, you know, breaks down kind of just it's one of those things that if I was to ask you about your history without talking to you, I'd just play that track, DJs and MCs. Um, is that kind of what's the significance of DJs and MCs uh, in the context of, I guess, the title of the album and the mission of the album? Yeah, DJs and MCs. Matter of fact. The title comes from an uh, old Rodney O and Joe Cooley song. They had a song called DJs and MCs. DJs and MCs. The rhymes you want So I got the camera Smile and say cheese And me and Joe Cooley Are DJs and MCs And I used to love Rodney O and Joe Cooley So I got the title from them But the content in the track Comes from Showing the history Of rap Like man When I first came around Like I told you Initially It was Sugar Hill Gang It was The Breaks and these people, they were partying. They were telling us things. If there was a cuss word, they were going to bleep it out. There was uh, principles there. There was morality there. And from there, we began to go into breakdancing, b-boying, emceeing, um, and things like that. And then now it has morphed and evolved into a place where I talk about where, hey, man, now we got guys wearing dresses with, with guns. <laughs> you know, those supposed to be the guys we looking up to. And it's almost like what happened. 
how do we go from self-destruction, which was warning us about the, what would happen if we self-destruct, to actually self-destructing? What, what happened? What happened between um, why is that? And then we go into a place where now we talking about I'll pop you. How did we go from, um, you know, fight the power to fighting each other? It just doesn't make any sense. And so DJs and MCs is a shout to every MC and to every DJ. And I'm, I'm trying to big up us and remind us like, look, man, everything can't be about everybody else. Sometimes we got to look within and say, what can we do better? And I remember being a kid when I was influenced by hip hop and hip hop was influencing me in the right direction and dropping science, dropping knowledge. So if I was influenced by hip hop in the positive way, you can't convince me that hip hop can't influence a kid in a negative way. So DJs and MCs is about the evolution of hip hop, the beautiful parts and also the parts where I think we can get it a little better. One thing that I, I appreciate you mentioned on on that the track as well is that you you know you you make a point of reference to talk to to mention your growing up on your dad's record collection. Um, you know, earlier you talked about the MCs that you were influenced in uh, about, but can you also talk about the importance of uh, the music you were hearing at home that also helped shape you as an artist? Yeah, um, I immediately. Uh, I grew to love music. I used to get in trouble for um, having the radio on all night. I would try to wake up and turn it off before my parents woke up, but I just couldn't. I couldn't get. I couldn't get to it. Sometimes I just had to. So I loved music. So my dad initially, um, he had Al Green, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Barry White, um, uh, Teddy Pendergrass, Peebo Bryson. So much soul, Stephanie Mills. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Um, and so, and he had his neatly stacked record collection. If you touched it, he would know. He might have had OCD back in the day. So, <laughs> so I just loved, I love, love, love listening to his records. Come to find out, those are the same records that we sample today. So I just had a love. I had a love for hip hop before hip hop was even involved in society it was just that i was in love with the samples that we would one day sample and so man i always loved music i was the type of guy when my dad was ready to get out the car i'd be like hold on dad wait can we finish listening uh i was that kid i just loved music i love records and my mom she had the gospel stuff and stuff like that but my main influence was always um soul and then when I went to a white school for a couple of years, I learned to love rock and I just always love music. I love good records. I can listen to almost any genre and pick out a great record. It's just something that almost, it was like it chose me and I didn't choose it. So that's always incorporated in my hooks and my, in my nostalgia and the way that I incorporate a record or even sample. It comes from that era, the seventies where I believe some of the greatest records were made. Can I ask you your, your opinion on? Um, I hope this question makes sense. So I, I so I think what some what, what kind of has changed with uh, 
this obviously the sound of rap music is that uh like when you were coming up as you mentioned you had your you know your your parents record collection right and then and because because rap wasn't the number one genre of music i mean like you know it's significant like uh, being in new york city i remember driving around or you know in my parents car and there was a station called z100 and they would proud their big voiceover was proud to be like absolutely no rap music you know like very proud of saying that and <laughs> and to, and today they would not be called dead not playing rap music because they you know because they obviously know the popularity of it um right how do you think it uh i guess the goal maybe or uh uh, maybe the goal or the mission of of rap and hip hop culture changed, or maybe stay the same with people growing up uh, with rap actually being an influence for them versus other, you know, the number one influence versus like other rock or or you know gospel and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, first of all, when when we were introduced to hip hop. It was a, this was trial and error. This was something that may or may not last. Um, It was something that could be a fad or or not. I remember when uh, Salt and Pepper and uh, Kool Mo D protested the Grammys because we didn't have a, um, a, a category. And so this was, this was a trial. We were, we were rebels in a society and we were pushing this thing, hoping that it would be respected by mainstream media. And so it's definitely different because the new school, I asked a young man uh, about five, 10 years ago, I said, man, what was your first uh, hip hop album that you've ever heard? And he told me it was Illmatic. And it was like, man, it was like, whoa, Illmatic came out when I was about to record my first album. So for, for somebody's first album to be Illmatic, they have such a confidence that this is not going to not only f- it's not going to not fade, but it's, it is what it is. It's a million billion dollar industry. And so there's a different confidence level. There's a different um, esteem that we have seeing certain things being finally accepted. Did the Grammys finally accept us? Certain award shows finally accept us. Finally, um, Houdini was the first uh, hip hop group to go platinum guy to go double platinum so these were milestones within our seeing and growing uh and watching of hip-hop but these days um it's already something that has always existed and so you would have to do your homework to look back and see when it didn't but on top of that the difference is the message and so this is what i want us to get back to is not some people have a problem okay all you want is the golden era it's not that um, but what we need to get back to is when we had a conscience, the golden era, we had De La Soul, we had LL, we had Too Short, but there was a variety of things. I have a problem when everybody today wants to sound like future. They want to sound like the dopest person is the one who does not read. I was, I was, I came up on times when the dopest person was someone who was educated. Ice-T, he had a record that was called My Lethal Weapon Is My Mind. And I remember driving as a 16-year-old in my car. My friend, he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the library to get more ammo. And I was thinking about Ice-T's record. And so what we have to do to be a part of the, pro- uh, excuse me, be a part of the solution and not the problem is we have to start dropping nuggets in there for the youth to grasp a hold to that they can ride uh, all the way up to adulthood and raise their children with because entertaining records are entertaining records, but what makes it heavy or weighty is when you drop something in there 
that a person can live off of and use, drop wisdom, drop science. So the big difference to me, today it seems like anything goes. You could say anything. We had Too Short, but you had to sneak to listen to Too Short. You know what I'm saying? We, you know what I'm saying? We, we had uh, Blow Fly, but he was underground. We had Ice-T, but he was, you know, he was a hustler. But in a lot of ways, he was telling us, don't do what I'm doing. These days, it's almost like the dumber you are, the better you are. The more you don't care, the better you are. And it's, it's, it's almost like... Um, you know, if we don't be careful, we'll mess around and poison what was so beautiful. Mm. So, um, the first track on the album, uh, Fresh Prince, is uh, has Master Ace. Yo, what's good? This is Master Ace. Brooklyn, New York, EMC is the crew, and real hip hop is back. Check out extra. Starting out to talk, what is the significance of uh, having him on this track to help start out the album? Uh, when I was in high school, we all we had the Marley Mall um, album, which had the symphony on it, had Master Ace, uh, Big Daddy Kane, NC Shan, Roxanne, Shantae, the Juice Crew. You know, we know the lineup. And they were, to us, they it, it was nobody doper. Matter of fact, we got into arguments all day, like, who's the best? Is it KRS? Is it, is it, is it uh, Rakim or is it Big Daddy Kane? You know what I mean? It was only three rappers, and most people argued about two. Was it Kane or Rakim? And so to have Master Ace come and say something on my album is not so much about who I am, but it's more about who he is to me. Like, man, this, this what he means to me, I don't care if, if a million people don't know who he is, what he means to me, he represents that era. If you would have told me in ninth grade that one day Master Ace was going to speak on my album, you know, then I would have felt like, well, then I'm successful in life. That's how much he meant to me. And so having him on the album speaking that, man, is so dope because what I'm referring to and like it's supposed to be is the time when it's about beats and rhymes, where hip hop, the dopest person was not the one with the most followers, but the one with the dopest lyrics. Um, and that whole Juice Crew um, era, man, with Bismarck and FD popping on there, man. That's when hip-hop was, it was more than a genre, it was a way of life, and so to have him on there was just kind of a big up and a salute, and just a reminder for all of those who come up with me, like, you remember what it's all about, it's about the Master Aces, the Bismarcks, the Hebdees, the Canes, the EPMDs, it's about those guys when it's all said and done, because those are the guys who inspired us. Got on the radio, I could tell it was written. Old school freestyle me, I can't forget it. Cause it ain't even written. It ain't even wrote it. When I'm on the microphone, the trope, not sugar it. What's the importance of, uh, and, and I, I appreciate this because I, I have this, uh, I don't know what it's from, like this quote unquote weird, weird, I don't know, obsession? I don't know, not obsession, bad word. Um, about with with beats and music i i i really like uh music that's produced with uh like a classical sounding like you know piano or or violin you know it's something that because i i always think it kind of high really highlights the the mc's voice as well as that kind of that extra instrument when it's there Mm -hmm. so for you what is the significance of the piano in on on that track piano but also in music Man, on that track, um, I heard the track, Oh Love did the track, and I was like, uh, 
the vibe I'm getting is just reminding me of a piano. My wife plays the keys. So I was like, okay, let me write a little bit about that within the music. Um, but in general, man, I've always loved uh, instruments. You know what I mean? I love it when instruments are sampled. I play. I used to play the guitar. I played the trumpet for four years. I played the piano for a little bit. Um, and so to me, hip-hop is at its dopest when it's taking those old-school classical sounds, even with the crackles, and it's dropping it with the new beats. Uh, there's nothing wrong with played stuff, but sometimes, um, which is characterized by West Coast music, sometimes the played stuff can get away from, to me, the essence. Like, I don't mind being heavy with the bass, but man, give me a dirty sample on top. Don't have it, don't have it so played that it sounds like, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, uh, some music artists could sing over the top. So I, I love the classical jazz, obviously Ron Harper, uh, you know, all the saxophonists. You know, we can go on and on about who, but it's, it's, it's nothing better than, to me, that's the essence of hip hop, going record shopping, dropping it on the turntable, and then a loop grabs your ear and you make the best out of that loop. So I, 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 I love it, man. And the piano, the whole song was just uh, kind of a shout out to that, man. Like instrumentation, the instrument itself. And, 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 and let's keep in mind, you know, like really what it's all about. Like, man, it's, 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 it's not a whole lot of components in hip hop that you need to be dope. You need a mic, turntables, maybe a piano, maybe a bass or whatever. But just breaking it down to that rare form where dope is dope. Sometimes when it's too much added, you know, it gets away from the element. And I don't want to be legalistic about it. You can add any instruments that you want, but you want to keep in mind, man, we're trying to uh, talk to an audience, not go platinum necessarily. Find out you were left by me. Is it wizardry or magic? Your majesty, he lavished me like it came down magically. What's the uh, uh, "Bang the Drums" is the uh, the lead uh, single video uh, from the album? Uh, why did you Why did you guys go? Or why did you choose to go with "Bang with the uh, Bang the Drums"? Um, I chose "Bang the Drums," man, because I thought it was saying what I wanted to say. People hadn't heard from me from a while, in a while, and you know the first line I say is "The game is fake." When I'm listening, I can't tell if it's Wayne or Drake. And so I had played so many, I played a lot of records and I heard some things on the radio station. And honestly, man, I couldn't tell who was who. I didn't know if I was listening to Wayne, Drake. I didn't know if this was Future, if it was a uh, designer. I mean, it was so many different, it was so many different artists that sounded the same. I said, man, you know, I want to come in with something that don't sound like anything. Uh, don't remind me of anything. And so I put out Bang the Drums, and the, and the record came from when I was listening to songs. I said, man, this don't sound like, you know, everything I'm hearing sounds alike. It don't seem like anybody's bold or confident enough to do their own thing. So I remember uh, Cave Solo, he had a song called Bang, uh, excuse me, Drums of Death. And LL had Rock the Bells, and I kind of mixed those together with Bang the Drums. And then I said, when I write my lyrics, 
I'm going to come off, you know, with this drum sample and I'm going to talk about the problems with hip hop today and also where I think we should be. And so playing the drums is just kind of like a wake up call. Like, man, get out of that old mumble rap. Get out of that old sleepy music. Get out of that old syrup drug music. You know what I'm saying? And let's get back to MCing. Bang the drums. Uh, Lost and Found uh, starts with the sample of Biggie. Rock to my tape pop. The same sample kind of throughout the track. Uh, why Biggie? But also, if you could also talk about the lyrics that you start out with, which is, I brought my backpack in because lyrics is back in. Um, kind of talk about the importance of these lyrics and what these lyrics mean as well. Yeah, man. Um, when, the, when, the, when the beat was given to me by Scott Thrill, shout out. Um, he had the Biggie sample in there, and I was like, ooh, yeah. You know, Biggie obviously had that commanding voice. Some of MCs had that commanding voice like Tupac, Chuck D, uh, Heavy D, Biggie, we can go on and on. And so it, it's going to grab your attention right away. And then when I wrote, I'm like, man, I brought my backpack in because lyrics is back in, letting people know. I see the Kendrick Lamars out there. I see the J. Coles out there. I see these, I see the guy that, I see some of these new guys who are focusing on lyrics and I appreciate it. And since lyrics are back in style, boom, here, let me talk about my thing. And it was all about, you know, uh, you know, if this rapper or it's 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 been influenced by my style, then man, you know, let let the people know. Write me a check, say something about it. You know, Dana Dane influenced me. I'm not just gonna uh, do every interview and never give a shout out to Dana Dane. That that makes no sense. That's that's what you call biting. If you can't give it up And so I give I, I like to give my shout out It's like LeBron If he's just to go in the NBA And never give a shout out to Jordan It makes no sense And so the appeal on the record Is like look man If you've been influenced If you have my CD when you was a kid Don't sit out here and sound like me And don't ever give me any acknowledgement Man just go ahead and give it up It, it don't make you less of an MC it, To me it makes you more of a man with integrity So that's what that was about At the end of the day It ain't about an accolade Making sure your shackles free Grateful that your family's paid my top 10 the world don't acknowledge about two cents is what i think about it rock on um what's what happens now for you i mean you you know you 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 got this new album it's out um we're obviously talking during a pandemic so tours are canceled you know um what what is your plan in terms of keeping the music going, getting yourself kind of more out there. Um, yeah, so I guess what, what's next? Um, I got, a, I got, I got something coming up on my, uh, my guy's Pete spray. He got a project coming out, uh, yo MTV raps project for the people who know about it. Type a type of a nostalgic, uh, project with some, uh, great names on there. Um, you know, but as far as the pandemic and things like that, man, it kind of brings it all back to what I was saying uh, initially, which is it's like it's supposed to be. I believe God is in control. I believe that certain things happen um, in, in life. It's very normal. 
to take things for granted. You see your kids every day, you begin to, you know, not appreciate your kids. You're in your house every day, you begin not to appreciate your house. It's just a normal way of life. And so when we are used to being around each other every day, used to having certain avenues uh, with a green light, we are almost kind of caught off guard when there's a red light or things have to change. And so for me, man, the essence about good music is to always be true to yourself and make good music organically. It's not about um, followers per se. It's not about even having to do concerts. I believe that good music will always be found by great fans. And just like the way I love, man, I, I, I have so many artists that people don't know about, but I found them because they have a record of doing good music. I just want to, whenever you look at me, you can say, look, man, he, he did this. He didn't do this. Fine. That's all good. But one thing he did do, he never came out with nothing weak. He had such a love for music that you could tell he was an artist, but he was also a fan. He had such a respect for the game that whenever I see his name, even if I don't like the record, I know it's going to be quality. And that's all I can ask for. And I believe that once we give our best, it's up to God to put it in whosoever hands he wants to. You know, many are the plans of a man, but it's, it's God who directs his steps. Men throw the dice, but God decides if it's going to be five deuce or if it's going to be two aces. So that's my, that's my theology. That's my philosophy. And so I just want to continue to make good music. I believe that I'm coming to uh, an end in a sense where, you know, I don't want to be in the spotlight always. That's, I don't have the same desires that I once had when I was 20. And so I want to pass it on to my sons. I want to get in the background. My wife, she sings Regina Siobhan. And so it's not this, I don't have the same desire. I don't want to, you know, I think Jordan at some point, even though he's the greatest of all times, at some point he puts on a tie and says, and says, you got, you guys play now. That don't make, that don't make me any less of the best player of all times. It just means that I'm, I'm more in tune with seasons. And a lot of times we have a trouble with seasons. You see rock and roll guys, they be like 90 years old and they still trying to act like they're 20. And sometimes you see hip hop guys, they be older and they trying to act young. I don't want to act younger than I am. I want to be relevant. I want to be accountable. I want to be responsible. And now that I know what my gift means while I'm rapping, I want to give something that's going to help the next person grab the baton and go even further. So that's where I am. Uh, he's extra prolific. New album is like it's supposed to be. Uh, it's an honor to have you, man, on the library with Tim Heineken. Thank you so much for for taking the time. Hey, man, I appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. And shout out, man, to everybody, especially, you know, this is full circle for me because Ice-T, man, like I told you, he said my lethal weapon is my mind. The first two albums I grew up on as a kid, and I looked up to that man. And, and I thank every OG you know, the Ice Cubes and the Chuck D's and the Karis ones who started one way but have evolved into a more mature mindset because there are kids listening, man. And so I, I shout out and salute every OG, man, who may have been wild back in the day but have tapered off and not grown. You ain't sold out. Some people say he sold out, but there's no selling out when you mature. That's called growth. And I respect you deeply. Thank you. Yeah.
that's old school. Like a rock gave me a hundred, so I ran down to the mall and got the tape that I wanted. Houdini and DMC, this back in 84. I hit the block with the tape, some sister radio. She had the same one that LL had. Me and Chad with a BL crew. The crowd gathered cause we had pop blocking and breaking. The fat boys was the favorite. That's back when I used to get my medallions off of Mercedes. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.